Pastor John was 32 years old when he was put in prison by the state authorities. He hadn't done anything horrendously wrong. He wasn't arrested for any major crime. He was simply put in prison because he was a preacher. He was a pastor. And he was in prison because the government of his country felt that they wanted to restrict the expressions of the Christian faith to one state-sanctioned church. Pastor John was part of a little flock of people who didn't want to be part of that state-sanctioned church. They felt they wanted the freedom to worship God the way that they understood the scriptures. And because he refused to bow to that, because he refused to give in to that and go along with that, he was put in jail. And for the next 12 years, that's where he languished. He wasn't released until he was close to 45 years old. He had been widowed just a year or two before going to jail, but he had four little children, and then he remarried a young woman by the name of Elizabeth. Elizabeth then had to raise her four stepchildren alone while John was in jail. In fact, she was pregnant with their own child when he was imprisoned, and then she miscarried that child and had to go through the pain of grieving that loss while her husband was far away. During his 12 years of imprisonment, Pastor John began to write a book. He would actually end up over his lifetime writing uh, over 50 books. But this one book is the book that he is best known for. And he spent most of those years in jail writing and he didn't complete it until he was out of prison and had a few more years back in being a pastor again until he finally got it ready and he had it published. And it's become one of the best-selling books and most loved Christian books of all time. His name, full name, is Pastor John Bunyan. And the book he wrote is called The Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is the story of Christian, a follower of Jesus who comes to faith early in this little story that John Bunyan wrote and then takes a journey. He leaves behind the city that he was living in, the city of destruction, that is earmarked uh, for God's wrath because they are sinners and have rebelled against God. But he leaves the city of destruction and the pilgrim's progress is the journey of Christian as he journeys through life towards the celestial city, which is Bunyan's way of describing heaven. The pilgrim's progress is this novel that Bunyan wrote to encourage his little congregation of people and others like them during 17th century England to encourage them to remember that this life is a journey, that this life is a pilgrimage, that this isn't all there is, that actually if you're a follower of Jesus, your hope is the next life, your destination is the celestial city. That's what God has promised. And this life is simply a journey, a pilgrimage with your eyes looking forward to what is to come. His big idea could be summed up this way. Followers of Jesus are pilgrims. We're on a journey. We're on a journey through this world, heading towards the world that is to come. That's why he wrote this little book that for the last 300 and something years has been read by generations upon generations, the pilgrims. And I tell you about Pilgrim's Progress uh, because today we launch into our third main series this year on prayer. 
our whole focus this year as part of our, our long-term multiply vision is that we want to grow a culture of prayer. We want to grow as a church of people who really deeply pray, and that's core to who we are. So we focus this entire year around prayer, and we started uh, at the beginning of the year with a series we call Prayer for Everyday Life as we walk through the Lord's Prayer and the way that Jesus taught us to pray if we're his followers. And then over the last few weeks, we've been doing this uh, next series, Prayer in the Spotlight, where we've looked at the, the big questions that, that Botany Life people have about prayer and tried to answer those as best we can. And then today, we start into the third series for this year, still on prayer, but coming at it from another angle again. And we're calling this one Prayer on the Journey. We're picking up this idea that John Bunyan wrote about over 300 years ago, that life's a pilgrimage that we are on this journey together and we are heading uh, towards what is our home, which is heaven. And so we need to understand this life as this isn't all there is. This isn't the final destination. We're not home yet. And we shouldn't be uh, busy trying to make this place as comfortable as we can. We should be traveling through life with our ultimate destination, our ultimate goal, our ultimate home in mind. And that should impact the way we live, the way we think about our work and careers, the way we handle our money, the way we use our time, the way we relate to each other and relate to people who aren't on this pilgrimage yet. It should actually impact the way we live our whole lives. But in particular, what we want to focus on in these next few months is the way that this idea of pilgrimage impacts the way we pray. And so we're going to be diving into a part of the Bible that is often neglected and often ignored uh, by God's people. We're going to jump into the book of Psalms. Psalms are the songs of God's people in the Old Testament. 150 songs or prayers to God. Songs for times of joy, songs for times of tears, uh, songs for, for worship individually and corporately, but also times to mourn and repent and weep. And we're going to jump into one part of the Psalms, a particular little collection of Psalms. It's a little mini book within the big book. It's called the Pilgrim Psalms. The Psalms 120 to 134. And what we want to do over the next few months is we want to walk through these 15 Psalms and look at them as prayers and learn to pray more, having sat at the feet of Jesus and having thought through these big questions. We now want to come and sit at the feet of David and Solomon and Hezekiah and others who wrote these particular psalms and think about how they help us pray through seasons of life. One commentator about these particular psalms said, these 15 psalms seem to have been used by pilgrims who were making their way to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts that they had as God's people. Uh, Joseph and Mary would have sung these psalms when they journeyed up uh, to the city with the young Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself would have sung them when he went up to Jerusalem with his disciples. If you were to turn to any of these psalms, and we're not going to go there today, we're going to jump into them from next week, but if you were to turn to any of them, you'd see a little heading at the top of each of these 15 psalms. It depends on the translation. Most of the translations translate it a song of ascent. Or a song of going up is what it literally means. And there's scholarly debate about what that means, whether that's a literary feature, whether it's steps of the temple. But most scholars believe that it means this, that these were the songs that people sung, pilgrims sung, as they journeyed up to Jerusalem from wherever they lived for the feast. These are the prayers they prayed together on this journey of life. And so we want to pick this up and follow 
a really strong tradition through the last 2,000 years of the Christian church of Christian people looking at these psalms as prayers to be prayed or songs to be sung on this pilgrimage of life. And so that's what we're going to be doing in these, in these next few months, walking through these particular psalms and, and think, learning about how we should pray with this idea in mind that we're pilgrims, that this isn't home, this isn't our final destination, this isn't what life is all about. We're on a journey towards heaven, and this is how we need to pray. So we're going to come, as we go uh, through this, um, and come across different psalms that help us pray through different seasons of life. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to look at Psalm 121, the second one in this collection, and suggest that it's a prayer that we can learn to pray when we need God's help in life. Uh, Psalm 125 is, is a prayer to pray when you feel insecure. Psalm 130, a prayer to pray when you need forgiveness. Uh, Psalm 132, what you pray when you doubt God's promises. But not all of these pilgrim psalms are sad psalms. They're not all of them are negative. Uh, some of them are psalms or prayers that we have to pray in, in the positive parts of life. So Psalm 122 is a prayer to pray when you're ready to worship. Or Psalm 128 is a prayer to pray when you're feeling blessed by God, when you want to celebrate what God is doing in life. Psalm 133 is a prayer when relationships are good. And over these next two, uh, three or four months, we're just going to walk through each of these psalms, thinking about what it means to pray and to seek God in this pilgrim life, this life as men and women who are on this journey, realizing that this isn't home, but as followers of Jesus, that we're pilgrims. We're on this journey through this world, but headed towards with our eyes on the world that is to come. So we're not actually going to jump into these psalms today. We're going to jump into Psalm 120. We're going to start this series off properly next week. But what I want to do today is I want to help us get this idea of being pilgrims into our minds. I want to really settle in and help us just get this mindset again that this is who we are, a core part of our identity as followers of Jesus. If you've put your faith in him, a core part of who we are is that we are pilgrims, that this isn't home. We're journeying through this life with our eyes on the life to come. Now, there's a number of passages through the New Testament that bring out this idea. In fact, I'm going to ask Jeff and Roz Gray. I can't even see where you're sitting at the moment, Jeff and Roz. There you are. Uh, Jeff and Roz are going to come up, and, um, and they're just going to read to us a selection of passages from the New Testament. These are not ones that I'm going to speak from. I'm going to speak from another key passage, but I want you to get the sense of the breadth across the Bible about how often this idea of pilgrimage or journey is described. So listen to the Word of God. Four. As I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, and their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is not set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. 
Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abandon to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. Since you call on a father who judges each person's works impartially, live out your life as foreigners here in this in reverent fear. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Thank you, guys. And there's actually more passages we could have read. Time and time again through the Bible, we're reminded this isn't it. It's not about this life. We've actually got a different home. Philippians said our citizenship is in heaven. And we're actually meant to live in this light, uh, in this life in light of that fact, that this isn't home, that we're on a journey through this life, but we're actually headed somewhere else. Now, we could have actually talked through any of these passages that, that Jeff and Roz just read to us, but I actually want to take you this morning to a different place in the New Testament, to a, quite an obscure little passage that I've often gone running straight past before in my life, but I've actually come to realise in these last couple of weeks really does a beautiful job of describing this idea that we are pilgrims, that we're on this journey. And it's found in the book of Hebrews. So if you've got a Bible, either a paper one like this, or you've got an app there on a phone or an iPad or whatever, I want to invite you to come to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we want to explore this idea that we are pilgrims on a journey through this world, heading towards the world that is to come. Hebrews 11, if you're familiar with it at all, it's quite a famous chapter. The book of Hebrews itself is a little bit obscure and a little bit tough, but Hebrews 11 is probably the most famous part of it. It's called, often called the Hall of Faith. It's kind of like this, this chapter that goes through, trolls through the Old Testament almost like a a photo gallery or an art gallery. It's kind of like the writer to the Hebrews, and we don't know who the writer is. This person's anonymous who wrote this letter, but it's like they're a tour guide. And they're taking us through this hall of fame, and there's these portraits hanging on the wall of all of these heroes of faith of the Old Testament. And there's a couple of verses that introduce it, and then a couple of verses that conclude it. But the rest of the chapter is just like this this wave after wave of, of stories, reminders from the Old Testament of these great people who lived by faith. And so the writer talks about the the ancients, 
Um, by faith, Abel did this, and Enoch did this, and Noah did this. And then he gets to the patriarchs. By faith, Abraham did this, and by faith, Sarah gave birth, and by faith, Isaac believed, and Jacob did this, and Joseph. And then we get to the Exodus, and Moses, and the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea, and Joshua, and Rahab. And I love verse 32. And then he says, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David. You know, and he just kind of goes, man, I could keep going. There's a whole museum. There's still galleries to show you. And the point of this whole chapter is he's trying to show from these Old Testament stories all of these people lived by trusting in God. They had faith and they, they lived their lives by faith, even though they made mistakes and messed up and almost all of these people blew it and we read about the stories of how they messed it all up. Their lives are lives of walking by faith and journeying through life with an eye on the goal. But it's midway through that section on the patriarchs there, eight, verses 8 to 22. Tells the story of Abraham and Sarah and uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But right in the middle of that, it's kind of like the writer of this letter stops and he inserts this editorial comment in verses 13 to 16. It's almost like he's, he's leading this tour guide through this, through this uh, gallery, showing you these portraits of these great people of faith, these men and women of faith. And then he just stops and almost turns around and looks at us. And here's what he says. If you've got it open there, have a look. Hebrews 11 verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, but he has prepared a city for them. And then he carries on with the tour. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham did this. But it's like he's just paused for a minute and turned to us as he takes us on this tour and said, just let me point this out to you. This is how they chose to live. One uh, commentator, Richard Phillips, says Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, looks on faith as a pilgrimage. He picks up this exact idea. The idea of walking in faith shows that the Christian life is a journey and its destination is not this life, but only far off in the next. What I want to do for just a couple of minutes before we jump into these pilgrim psalms starting next week is help us look at what it means to actually be a pilgrim, what that really means for the way we live our lives. And there's three characteristics in particular that the writer to the Hebrews picks out that I just want to lift out of these few verses this morning. First characteristic is this. These people, and he's, I think he's writing specifically about Abraham and Sarah, but it's true of all of them. They refused to give up. One of the key characteristics of people who understand that this life's a pilgrimage is that they refuse to give up. They choose to trust God no matter what. See, look again at verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. See, now this is in the middle of the Abraham and Sarah story. And Abraham uh, had been given these amazing promises by God. They, they're given in, in chapter 12 of Genesis. They're given in, chap in chapter 15. They're repeated again in chapter 17. Let me just quote 17 for us. They're repeated by God again and again and again. 
God says to Abraham, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be their God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I'm going to give to you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. It's amazing promises. And really the whole story of Abraham is the story of this incredible promise that God was giving to him, offering him. I'm going to give you descendants uh, more than the sand on the seashore. I'm going to give this land to your descendants as the place where you will live. I'm going to bless your life, Abraham. And through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. But here's the reality. They didn't receive most of those blessings. These are the blessings that God gave. These are the promises that he made. But actually, in their own lifetime, Abraham and Sarah did not see the fulfillment of those promises. The best they got was the birth of Isaac, which was pretty awesome. But even that, it took 25 years of walking by faith before God gave them that. But when they died, they had no vast array of descendants. They had one promised son. When they died, they didn't possess any of the land that God had promised. When they died, they hadn't seen too much of this blessing that God talked about. But what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is even though they died, they still believed, they still trusted God, they refused to give up, even in the face of death. I actually wonder, as I've gone through this little passage in Hebrews, whether it isn't a bit of a reflection on this story. Genesis 23, this is not one of the cool stories of Abraham. If you pick up a book on Abraham's life, most people go running past this particular chapter. It's the chapter of the death of Sarah. It's kind of depressing. It starts off this way, Sarah lived to be 127 years old, which is, that's kind of cool, or depressing, depending on your viewpoint. Um, She died at a place called Kiriath Abar, which is now called Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. So Sarah... Uh, has passed away. Exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. She died and none of the promises have yet been fulfilled. So Abraham mourns for her. And then look at what he does. Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and he spoke to the Hittites, the people of the land. He said, I'm a foreigner and a stranger here among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The rest of the chapter, Genesis 23, is the story of how he negotiates for land from the Hittites. And at the end of the chapter... He has bought some land and he buries his wife. And and the reason most people skip it is because it's saying, well, what the heck is this even doing in the Bible? There's a few verses at the beginning of the chapter that talk about how she died, and then the last couple of chapters is how he buried her, and the whole rest of the chunk of this chapter in the Bible is all about the in-depth negotiations with the Hittites on how you buy a burial cave. And it's kind of like, what the heck is this even in the Bible for? You know, maybe we could have had some other story in its place and used that, you know, that ink and paper for something more significant. But the reason the story is so significant is that Abraham at this moment, tears running down his face, beard and, and hair now a stark white. He is an old man. He is about to bury his wife, the woman he has walked through life with, walked by faith with, left their town of Ur to follow this call of God, she's dead. And at this moment, as he stares at the reality of death, understanding the promises haven't been fulfilled, God hasn't done all the stuff God has said yet, 
Abraham says, I am buying the first piece of property in this land that God has promised. This chapter is about a a statement of faith. Abraham is saying, as his wife is now lying dead next to him, I still believe. And I so believe in what God has said. I so believe he is going to give us descendants. He is going to bless them. He's going to give us this land. I'm going to buy the first pit of land so that I can bury my wife as a statement, even in the face of death, we believe. We believe. I think that's what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about here in verse 13. They refused to give up, even in the face of death. He just refused to give up. He chose to trust God no matter what. That's a pilgrim. That's someone who gets it. This life isn't all there is. The truth of the matter is that it's often in the face of death or the face of sickness that many of us do begin to question the promises of God. When a loved one or even ourselves receives a diagnosis that isn't favourable, when death comes and snatches away someone we love, it's often in those times of dark grief we wonder where God is. What the writer to the Hebrews is saying, it's in that dark place that Abraham goes, no, I'm going to trust Even in the face of death, I'm not going to give up on what God has promised. In May of 2000, one of my uh, favourite pastors that I look up to and read, a man by the name of James Boyce, stood on the pulpit of the church that he pastored in Philadelphia. He had been pastoring that church for about 40 years. And he stood up to announce to the congregation that he'd been diagnosed with a severe form of liver cancer. And in the sermon that he preached that day, he said these words. If I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, what's happening in this diagnosis of cancer, he said there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. God's in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they're not accidental. It's not as though God somehow forgot what's going on and something bad slipped by him. He went on said, but what I've been impressed with mostly, secondly, is something in addition to that. See, it's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. God's in charge, but he doesn't care. And Montgomery Boyce, with this diagnosis, this cancer in his body, says, That's, it's not that. God is not only the one who is in charge. God is also good. Everything he does is good. Listen to the words of a dying man. Because that was actually his last sermon. Within eight weeks, James Boyce was dead. And those were his final words to his congregation. Just like Abraham and Sarah, even in the face of death, he refused to give up. He refused to go any other direction except to keep pressing on for the destination he was heading. That's a pilgrim. Pilgrims refuse to give up. Second thing that the writer to the Hebrews wants us to see in this little story is that pilgrims also refuse to give in. Pilgrims refuse to give in to the culture around them. 
picking up midway through verse 13 towards the end of that, it's still part of the sentence in the NIV, but I think it's a new thought. They admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Those words, foreigners and strangers, those were sprinkled through the readings that Jeff and Ross just read to us. They admitted they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say those kinds of things show that they're looking for a country of their own. What if you notice that terminology back in the story in Genesis 23? It's the very first thing that comes out of Abraham's mouth as he sits down with the local people, the Hittites, to negotiate for a burial plot of land. The first thing he utters, I am a foreigner and I am a stranger among you. And the word that NIV's translated the word in this letter, admit, it's stronger than that probably. I think they needed to be a little stronger. It's more like the word confess. It's almost like a confession of faith. He, Abraham is saying, I'm a foreigner and I'm a stranger. I am not one of you. I follow a different God. I've got a different home in mind. I've got a different destination. And so he says, sell me some property for a burial site. Why? Because I'm not, a, I'm not one of you. I'm a foreigner here. And what, as you go through the story, they come back and say, sir, listen to us. You're a mighty prince. They're honoring Abraham. And they say, look, you bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse his tomb. You're welcome to bury your beloved wife in any of our tombs alongside the, our people that we love. And Abraham said to them, no. If you're willing to let me bury my dead, listen to me and intercede with Ephron over there. I want his cave. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price. And the rest of the chapters, these negotiations they go through. But what Abraham is saying to them is, I'm not one of you, and I'm not prepared to bury my wife alongside your loved ones. I don't want to be part of your culture. I don't want to be tied in. I don't want to go through um, the, the weird things that you guys might do around death and ancestors and the, the life to come and all that kind of stuff. No, I'm a foreign. I serve a different God, and I'm not going to buy in with you. I'm not going to assimilate to you. I'm not going to fit in with you. I want to buy my own piece of land for my family who follow the one true God, and we're going to bury our dead there. It's this huge statement of faith, but also a statement of refusing to follow along and assimilate into the culture. He lived in this land for more than 50 years, living in tents as a nomad, owning no little parcel of it at all. But the whole time, he never, ever settles into any of the cities alongside these people. In fact, in the story of Abraham... There's another character called Lot, his nephew. And Lot is a foil. In, in literature, a foil is another character that is the opposite. And the foil helps you see this character in either a good or bad light. In the story of Abraham, Lot, his nephew, does everything that Abraham doesn't. He assimilates into the world around him, in particular the city of Sodom. So in Genesis chapter 13... Abraham and Lot part company, and Abraham, uh, sorry, Lot goes and settles near Sodom. In the next chapter, Genesis 14, Lot is now living in Sodom. In Genesis 19, when the angels come to announce that Sodom's about to be destroyed for its horrendous sin, Lot is sitting in the city gate, which means he's one of the elders of the city. 
And so in, in the story in Genesis, Lot is assimilating more and more and more into the culture of around him, in particular the culture of Sodom. Abraham has uh, remained aloof the entire time. Not because he's a jerk, not because he doesn't want to mix, he doesn't want to you know, hang out with people that, that, that drink or dance or whatever else. No, he simply wants to worship God and follow God and obey God. And he refuses to give in. He refuses to assimilate into the culture. And so when he comes now to buy this little piece of property, the first little uh, footstep within the promised land, the opening words he says is, I'm a foreigner and I'm a stranger. I'm not one of you. And through the last 50 or 60 years, however long it's been, I have never yet assimilated or joined you. I've refused to give up even in the face of my wife's death. And I've refused to give in to the culture around me. He chose to trust God by being different all the way along. Third character trait then of a pilgrim is they refuse to go back. Have a look at verse 15. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Right before the story of Sarah dying, chapter Genesis 23, in the previous chapter, Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, God testing Abraham to, to test his faith. But then the end of the chapter, of chapter 22, there's this little, it's just weird. Sometime later, Abraham was told Milcar is also a mother. She's born sons to your brother Nahor. And then it's like this, this list one of those genealogical lists that you go running past, like there's seven kids or something, and they're listed there. What, what, why is that even in there? It's because Nahor, Abraham's brother, was back home. And while Abraham and Sarah had been living in this new land, obeying God, his brother had had a family. Abraham receives word, he's got seven kids, nephews you've never met. And it's a reminder, right before we're going to be told Sarah's now dead, that Abraham's got family far away. And the temptation within that is why not go home? You're about to be told that you know, Sarah's died. You're in this land alone. God hasn't fulfilled the promises. Your brother's got a wonderful family back home in the civilized part of the world. Why don't you just go home, Abraham? Give up. Head back. Go back to your old life and settle in. In fact, it's fascinating. Right after Genesis 23, the other side of the story about Sarah's death, you come to the story of Isaac getting a bride, Rebecca. It's a beautiful story. But we often go skipping past what Abraham says to his servant when he sends his servant to go find a bride for his son. He says, I want you to swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, that you won't get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. Again, I'm not giving in to the culture around me, among whom I'm living. I want you to go back to my country and my relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Beautiful story. The servant says to him, what if the woman I find is unwilling to come back to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? And Abraham says, no. Make sure you do not take my son back there. Why? 
because Yahweh, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and out of my land and spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, I'm going to give your offspring this land, he'll send his angel before you. See, Abraham is so convinced by the promise of God that he says to his servant, don't you ever take my son back. We're not going back. I'm not going back. My son's not going back. We've left that life behind and we're not turning around and heading back to it. I am trusting in what God has promised and I refuse to go back there. I'm not going to go and visit my brother. I'm not going to go and meet my nephews. I'm not going to give up on the promise. I'm not going to send my son back there. Even when Isaac's son Jacob does go back there because his brother Esau wants to kill him, which is a whole other story, Jacob is heading away back to the land of his ancestors to get away from his brother and God appears to him in a dream. There's a big ladder reaching up to heaven. God's standing at the top of the ladder, if you're familiar with the story. And God says to Jacob in this dream, I am Yahweh, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. And then he reiterates this promise. I'm going to give you a descendants, the land on which you're lying. I'm going to make your descendants like the dust of the earth. All the people of the earth are going to be blessed through you and your offspring. He reiterates all of the promises, and then he says at the end, and I'm going to be with you, Jacob, personally. And I'm going to watch over you wherever you go. And I'm going to bring you back to this land. So even while Jacob is on the run for his life to get away from his brother, and he does go back, God says, and I'm still going to protect you, and I'm going to bring you back here. And Jacob replies to God and says, if you're going to be with me, God, and if you watch over me on my journey, and if you give me food to eat, clothes to wear, so that I return safely to this land, to my father's household, then Yahweh will be my God. See, by faith, these pilgrims refused to give up on what God has said, even in the face of death. They refused to give in to the culture around them. They just chose to trust God to be different. They refused to go back to the life that had. Instead, they just said, no, we're going to keep pressing forward, looking to the destination where God is taking us. The truth of the matter is, it's really easy to be tempted to go back from where we've come from. For some people, there's a huge temptation as you journey through the Christian life to go back to the bottle that you left behind. Temptation to go back to the drugs that used to comfort you. To go back to the pornography that used to help you get through frustrating nights. For others, there's a temptation to go back to the old lifestyle. To go back to the the way that the career used to be the key thing that you lived for and gave your hours to. For others, there's a temptation to go back to the old habits that you used to live on, the habits of gossip and the habits of anger and the habits of using your tongue wrongly. And whatever we're tempted to go back to, Abraham and Sarah scream through history, don't go back, don't give in, don't give up. We're on a journey, folks, and we're not home till we're home. And if you're really a pilgrim, you're not going to give up and you're not going to give in and you're not going to go back. You're going to press on. And you're going to trust God and you're going to walk by faith and keep your eye on the God until the day he takes you home. And the tour guide of Hebrews, as he walks us through this amazing gallery of faith, he turns and he says, that's faith. Guys, that's faith. And that's 
what the faith that we need to show as followers of Jesus. We're pilgrims too. We're living in hope and surety that what God has promised is true. And we're looking forward to our home and our final destination where all his promises will come true. And we live life in this world. We journey through life now in light of what he has said is to come. One final sentence in Hebrews 11, this passage. The last part of verse 16, it just says this. Therefore, because they refused to give up and refused to give in and refused to go back, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he's prepared a city for them. That's true for every pilgrim. For those who refuse to give up. For those who refuse to give in. Those who refuse to go back. Those who choose to continue to trust in God. Because they keep looking forward. God. One day welcomes them home. I love the wording of that. Hebrews 11. Picks up this theme all the way through the Bible. That he will be their God. It's exactly the wording, by the way, you find when you get to the very end of the story. When you get to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, this celestial city that that Pilgrim's Progress is about, that Christian is walking towards. And the promise is that God will now be among the people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them and he will be their God. Same wording as Hebrews 11. And he'll wipe away every tear. And there'll be no more death and no more mourning and no more crying or no more pain because the old order of things is going to pass away. And every single promise of God that he has made will come true. And every hardship and difficulty on the road of pilgrimage won't matter because we'll be there. To a guide in the hall of faith just smiles and says it's worth it. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't go back. Because God is not ashamed to be their God. And he's prepared a city. He'll welcome them home. That's the life of pilgrimage. This reminder that we're on a journey. This life isn't all there is. There's a life to come and that's where we're heading. And that's the destination that we live for and move towards. And my prayer is over these coming months, as we look through these pilgrim psalms that we're going to be introduced to next week, as we use these prayers, these models, to pray through the different seasons of life that we find ourselves in, they will become tools to help us. To not settle, to not give up, but to pick up our pack and pick up our staff And keep going. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't go back. Let's push on. Lord Jesus, we want to say thank you for the example of John Bunyan himself, who refused to give in, who refused to give up, who refused to go back, who even endured prison, separation from wife and kids, 
because he was a pilgrim. Lord, we can get very tempted to settle in here, to make ourselves comfortable, to get so worried about our families and our careers, the home we have or the home we can't afford, the retirement we need to save for, the health issues we struggle with, the parents who are getting old. We get so caught up in what's going on. We can so forget this isn't home. Do you help us to remember we're pilgrims? Do you help us remember we're on a journey? Would you help use these psalms as models of prayer to help us be faithful to you? In Jesus' name.